But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was also so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 11. Welcome to Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today, we continue our series, What's the Point?, with a message titled, Pleasure. In this message, you'll see Solomon's attempts to get the most out of his life. Here's family pastor, J.C. Thompson. Well, Happy New Year. Thanks for coming back after last week. That was, that was a rough intro. Uh, if you weren't here, we're continuing our series called What's the Point? And last week, we, well, we talked about death, uh, which is a great way to reflect going into the new year. And I encourage you, please keep coming back because the book of Ecclesiastes that we're walking through is meant to be a whole message to us. But sometimes you're going to feel a little disappointed uh, after just sections of it. So I uh, appreciate you being back today. Um, our theme verse for today is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 11. And it just says this, But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. So encouraging again, right? Uh, no, I, I think today will be uh, helpful to us all. Um, I called today's message pleasure because it's, it's one of the pathways that, that Solomon decides to pursue. Um, if, if you could just picture for a moment, I don't know if you've ever gotten really bad news, uh, maybe a, a really bad health diagnosis, terminal illness, the big C word of cancer, maybe you lost a loved one, and then you have this opportunity to, to figure out what am I going to do with, to deal with this? Like, what's my response going to be to deal with this? And we all know there's a myriad of things that you can do. And so Solomon, in reflecting on the reality that he just figured out, is that we're all going to die, all of us. There's going to be a point in which our life ends here on earth. What do, what do I do? What do I do to figure out meaning? What do I do to figure out my identity? What do I do to figure out how to deal with this pain, this fear, this anxiety? And so that is what we're going to see today. We're going to see Solomon's pursuits in the midst of realizing that his life has an endpoint. So if you've got your outline, you can go ahead and take that out. Life's disappointing pursuits include practicalities. Practicalities. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 12 today. I, the teacher was king of Israel, and I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I observed everything going on under the sun, and really it is all meaningless like chasing the wind. What is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. Solomon lets his readers know that the first thing that he has determined to pursue is wisdom, the practical things of life. And he makes a strong claim here that he's going to understand everything there is to know about life. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you make a claim like that, 
I don't think I've ever made one that bold, but sometimes you'll get to a place where when you have a situation that invokes fear, anxiety, or you're suddenly aware that you're truly not in control, sometimes you can decide to dive into researching absolutely everything there is to know about that particular subject. You, di- you get a diagnosis, you go to WebMD. You talk to all your doctor friends. You scour the internet and medical journals trying to figure out what can I do to fix this. You learn that there's been a financial downfall that you didn't anticipate, and so then you figure out how can I make extra income or how can I reduce my spending so that I can now be in control again of my financial future. Have you ever resolved something like, I'm never going to blank, or I'm going to make sure that blank happens? Well, that's what we do. Solomon is being confronted with an existential crisis. He devotes himself to finding out not just about one subject, but about everything that there is to know about life. And his result of his search was that it was disappointing. In fact, translations share this disappointing news in different ways. Some of the phrases that you'll hear are dealt a tragic existence, a sore travail. A heavy burden are the phrases that translators have used to try and communicate this existence that God has given to us. It's also interesting that the first time that God is mentioned by Solomon, he's basically blaming him for what's happened to the human race. The first time he's mentioned. But he also wants to make sure that we understand something about our human existence. He shows us that God has created us distinct in comparison to the rest of creation. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means that we're not animals. Now, I know for a lot of us in here, we go, well, duh, JC, but here's the thing. In teaching young people who are trying to figure out existence and purpose and and who we are, I think it's important for us to, to revisit this, but I also think it's important for what's coming in the future. If you don't know, places like uh, the West Coast and over in Europe, They're talking about the body in a way that hasn't ever really been talked about, but you've probably seen uh, this type of language when it comes to sci-fi movies. Uh, So here's kind of the the premise, is that one day these phones that we can hold in our hands, one day they'll be linked to us neurally, and that when we think, they will do, and will always be connected. Now, if that's scary to some of you, probably should be, but for others of us who like work and efficiency, there's some kind of cool things to think about. Like, what if I can just think about texting my wife something and it just happens without me having to do anything with my fingers? What if I'm searching for that perfect recipe or how to celebrate New Year's Day? So there's some interesting things, but then when you go to its end, you realize that the words that they're using to describe our human body are really terrifying. We're just meat suits. That's what these are. They're a machine meant to take us to that next place. But that's not how God created human beings. God did create us with a body. But even in Christian circles, we have a tendency to separate spiritual things from our bodies. It's why it's easier for us to deal with things like diet or lack of sleep so that we can work more. We, we don't like to talk about those things as being sinful, of recognizing our limitations as creatures. We'd much rather talk about something that affects somebody else. And so we tend to separate our spirit or our soul from our body. But scriptures never do that. That was developed a long time ago from this guy named Plato. 
or he would separate the good things from the bad things, and the bad things means our bodies because they're earthly and tangible and material. And so Solomon is not advocating for separating our bodies from our minds or our spirits. He's not trying to separate the immaterial from the material. Instead, what Solomon is is trying to do is help us understand that we're not like animals. God made us different and distinct. We can do things like contemplate and think about why are we here? Why did I make that decision? We're also driven by things more than just survival. We can experience things like love. We can experience sorrow, not just physical pain, but emotional turmoil. And so God has separated us, made us distinct from the rest of creation. We can think about life's significance, our individual purpose, the purpose of humanity as a whole, and even more. Solomon wants us to understand that God, by giving us the blessing of making us distinct, at the same time, that is a heavy burden to carry, to think about life and its meaning and its purpose. You know, I've never really seen too many dogs that look disappointed with their existence. They seem just fine. They don't carry the same type of burden that we do. Am I doing enough? Am I being charitable enough? Am I using my money or my time in the right way? He goes on to say this in verse 16, I said to myself, look, I'm wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. Now, just to take a pause, if me and you were to say that, that would be arrogant and prideful, okay? And maybe there's a little bit of that in Solomon. But the Bible also said that Solomon was the wisest man to have ever lived. And so Solomon is not making light of the fact that he's the wisest man ever up until this point. He's letting you know, why should you trust his judgment and observation? Because he's been given the gift of wisdom from God himself. So pay attention. And then he says this, so, because of my great wisdom, so I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. But I learned firsthand that pursuing all of this is like chasing the wind. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. So Solomon discovers something when he relies completely on his own intellect, he's disappointed. In fact, he would have learned a great deal in this pursuit, trying to figure out what life's meaning is. But one of the things that he would have tragically learned is that his life is no different. No matter how much he learns, no matter how educated or skilled he becomes, his life as a human being is the same as someone who's learned nothing. What I mean by that, wisdom did not keep him from experiencing pain and sorrow. And it does not keep him from disappointment. Those are handed out to all of us. In fact, he makes the argument that learning could actually increase sorrow. Degrees or skills do not result in a better life in and of themselves. Solomon would argue that the more he learned, the more sorrow he experienced. The burden only increased alongside his knowledge. We, in this world, will never... Now, I hesitate to do this because when they teach you to be a communicator, they say things like, never say always and never say never. Justin Bieber even told us that, right? (laughs) But... I think I can confidently say we will never be wise enough to truly understand the mysteries of God and this universe on our own. 
Our human intellect alone is not enough to understand the realities of this existence in God's creation. But God does reveal truth to us. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, a verse that I'm sure you've heard over and over again. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now, I need to say this because in, in my generation and younger, this is the most important thing to them. Trust. They can sniff out fake from 25 miles away. They know if you know. They also know if you don't know. And trust matters. Well, what does that mean? Well, here's the thing that you can always rely on. God is always trustworthy. Always. In fact, every and each interaction you have with God, if you are honest and you come to him openly and you truly want what he has to give you, it will only increase your trust in him. So the key part of Proverbs 3, 5 is not, is God trustworthy? The key part is, how much of my heart am I investing in that relationship? He will never let you down. But are you willing to give him yourself? Are you willing to give him more of your heart? That increase in vulnerability will be met with the security of God. I'll say that again. Your increase in vulnerability will be met with security from God. But you have to give your heart to him. Verse 6 says, Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Now, as a kid, I went through Bible drills. You had these verses to memorize every cycle. And I remember learning this one. And this is part of the ignorance is bliss, but as a kid, they just said to us, the Bible is true, it's always true, it will always be true, no matter what. And so when it says, if you just seek God in all you do, he'll show you what to do, as a kid, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to ask God every time a situation comes up. And he was faithful to do that every time. But then you get older and you have life experience And you start to meet people who live life differently than you. And then you make wrong mistakes and you go, is this really true? And I can assure you, it always is because God is always trustworthy. How has your pursuit of wisdom, education, and overabundance of information about a subject, how has that really paid off for you? I mean, is life really living up to the expectations of the things you're learning? Parents, what kind of pressure are you putting on your kids in their education? Do you really think education is going to fix them? Kids, do you really think that as you pursue school and education, young adults in college, or you learn a skill, do you really think you're going to become an expert just by those few years of training? If you put all your eggs in the education basket, you might realize, just like Solomon did, that it's a foolish pursuit. Life's disappointing pursuits also include pleasure. Pleasure, chapter 2. Well, I'm going to do a quick summary here, but Solomon decides to seek pleasure in a few ways in this chapter. He tries to seek pleasure in laughter with both good friends and possibly some professional comedians or entertainers. He tries to seek pleasure in good drink and food in verse 3, projects that he can give his time, money, and efforts to in verses 4 through 7, and sensual pleasures in verse 8. 
Solomon decided to surround himself with good friends who made him laugh. He also, in verse 3, you can see, after much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. Now, for some of you, you maybe go, oh, goodness, Solomon is just going to get wasted here. No, that's not what he's doing. He said he's keeping his head about him, which means he's trying to find the meaning of life. And so the picture here is not somebody who's just drinking to get drunk. The picture here is someone who's becoming a purveyor of the best food and the best drink and the best wine. That's what he's trying to do. He's thinking, if I can find the best dish, if I can find the best drink, that will bring true satisfaction, right? I don't know if you've ever met anybody. I am one of these people, I have to confess. I have a big green egg. I love smoked meat. That's what I do. There's something about smoke touching uh, a pork butt or a rack of ribs that just offers a intense, worshipful aroma to the Lord. And so that's me. That's what I like to do. But I can just tell you, I, I still, I said this last week, you still get hungry after that. You still are looking for that one thing that's going to bring that dish to an even better place next time. But Solomon was trying to be this purveyor. He wanted the perfect pairings of food and drink. He would have went to the best vineyards to find the best wine. And he would have known the best stories from the best craftsmen of all of these things. And one thing that most of us in this room don't have is he had no limit on spending. So he would find the finest of the fine and wouldn't just talk about it, but he would go and get it. He also used his wealth and his wisdom to build homes, vineyards, gardens. And he decided he was going to get all the gold and silver he could get his hands on. I don't know if that was an investing strategy or he had a collection. I'm not sure. But he decided, this is what I'm going to do. And so he wouldn't have done the work. He would have been a supervisor to the work. And he would have gotten all this work done in his lifetime because of all of the slaves that he would have had. Those slaves could have either been purchased They might have been the spoils of war if he conquered another kingdom, or they maybe were given by kings or officials who were trying to negotiate a deal with Solomon. Those slaves also would have been in his home for a long time, and they would have had children as a part of the family. Now, in ancient culture, those slaves who would have been born into a family rather than purchased would have been a higher rank, and so you see that separation in Scripture. It's also important to know here that this is descriptive of what's happening, okay? This is not saying all of you go out and do this. Solomon is simply explaining, this is what I tried to do, and he never has made the claim that he is only doing godly things to find satisfaction and meaning in life. He's pursuing his own flesh to find ultimate satisfaction. And so this is not in any way condoning slavery but it is being honest and truthful with this man who is trying to find meaning by using men and women to accomplish his work. Verse 8 is also extremely interesting because if you have a King James Version, you have a, a very unique translation for a word in our NLT that is concubines. That word is musicians or musical instruments. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, that's weird that those two, thi- those two things aren't the same. You're right, first of all. Those are not two similar concepts, okay? But what happens is, is this word in Hebrew is not used anywhere else in the scriptures. So when you come to a a situation where you go, well, this is not anywhere else, what do you do? Well, you look around what's happening. Now, Solomon did have 
musicians and instruments that he brought to try and bring him satisfaction. But then there's a phrase, and that phrase is a little more clear in the KJV than it is in the NLT. But the phrase is, delights of the sons of men. That is used a few other times in Scripture. In the book of the Song of Solomon, where it talks about a love, sensual, sexual relationship between husband and wife. And so this, we think, I think, J.C. thinks, that this is the correct translation should be concubines. In other words, he's going to find partners to help fulfill him sexually as well. So Solomon has taken every pathway that you could choose in realizing my life's going to end. What can I do to bring satisfaction? He tried everything. He tried everything. That's important to understand. So while Solomon was proceeding in this pursuit, in, in his pursuit, he wasn't just pursuing godly things. He was pursuing things that satisfied his flesh temporarily. And I think this provides an interesting perspective for us as we're trying to share the gospel with people, as you're trying to share faith with uh, your young adult, your college student, that they need to, you know, these things that they pursue, like this is oftentimes how God uses their life to bring them to him. Now, a lot of you, that's your story in your life, that God used sinful things to bring you an awareness of your sin and your need for Christ. Can anybody give me an amen that that's your testimony, that's your story? A few of you came to your wit's end until you were presented with the gospel of Christ, and that gospel was sweet because you understood the reality of your pursuits in, that they will not ultimately satisfy you. And so it's, it's kind of a tough thing to share, but the one thing that I would just encourage you with as you're sharing with your young person who maybe is struggling, maybe is a prodigal in your eyes, is to share, here's the wisdom of the Word of God. These things will disappoint you at some point. They will disappoint you. And when you come to that disappointment, let's talk about what won't disappoint you. When you come to that disappointment, let's talk about what won't disappoint you. This is an incredibly important perspective for you as you share Christ with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. And these projects that Solomon would have spent his time on, ultimately he realized these projects won't last forever and they will not give me anything that will last forever. In verse 9 of chapter 2, so I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. Solomon discovered one thing that was a reward in all his pursuits, and that reward was the benefit of work, the benefit of work. It's important for us to understand that work was not something that happened after the fall. God gave Adam and Eve responsibilities in the garden. You can see that in Genesis 2.15, to tend and to keep it, to steward care of not only the garden, but also the animals in the garden, which means for me, I think when we get to heaven, we're going to have work to do. For some of you, that might be a tremendous disappointment. But I think all of us have been in a spot where we've worked on something and the work itself brought us joy. It's interesting to note, though, that Solomon did not say that because my work turned out like I wanted it to, it brought me joy. No, he said the work itself brought him joy, verse 11. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all meaningless. 
like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. So the pleasure from work was from the work, not from the accomplishment. In other words, he got to the end of the project and he was disappointed. Maybe he met his goal, disappointment. Maybe he did not meet his goal, disappointment. And I think there's wisdom here for us. I think there's wisdom here as we shape and disciple our young people that work is good and it's good for you to find work that you can enjoy. It's good for you to find work that you can enjoy. But parents, there's pressure here. Grandparents, there's pressure here because we, we do. We want our kids to be comfortable. So we share with them, you need to find a job that pays well. You need to find a job with benefits. You need to find a job that is stable. And as they share their dreams, their desires of being an artist or a construction worker or whatever their dream may be. I was talking with a a young person today who said, I desire to do gospel ministry work in the inner city and I worry. I worry about being able to provide for my family. Well, can I tell you something? Can I share something with all of you? God provides for all of us. God does. Not your job. Not the place in which you live. Not the government. God does. God provides for you. And so the work should bring satisfaction, not the accomplishment of it. It's why when you see your kid do something that brings life out of them, you recognize it, you affirm it, and you share with them verbally, this is something special about you. Maybe God made you to do this. In what ways are you pursuing pleasure apart from a life in Christ? Is it truly satisfying to you? Or you got to find a little bit more next time or a little bit different next time to bring you that next tinge of satisfaction. Life's disappointing pursuits also include productivity. Now Solomon, after all this observation about trying to understand everything about life, he comes to the same exact conclusion that he came to in chapter 1, verse 18. I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with the knowledge and skill that they have. Then they must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. I don't know if you've been there thinking about your future and how you're going to leave a legacy and realizing that you won't even get to determine what happens with your assets once you leave this earth. Maybe you'll leave them to your kids and you hope and pray that you'll give them enough instruction and that they love you enough that they'll do exactly what you ask. But there's no guarantee. Maybe you give to a great organization who's going to do great things with your money, but those organizations may go under. Or they may have a change in leadership and decide to pursue different things. 
Solomon was letting us know that the work that you do here on earth apart from Christ is left in someone else's hands. And when you pass, they get to choose how they use it. Will they honor your request? Will they work as passionately or as diligently or as intuitively as you do? Will it actually get to your children or your grandchildren or will it be taken by another entity? These questions create a lot of strife, a lot of difficulty resting. Pain, grief, trouble sleeping is how Solomon describes that understanding and observation. But the takeaway from the pursuit of these things is so important for us to see. And it's where Solomon gives kind of his first insight into how he thinks life should be. This is something to recognize and see. But before we get there, all that work that you're doing, all that planning, all that strategy, all that diligence, is that creating more peace in your life? Are you experiencing the peace of Christ by your efforts? Or more anxiety, more fear, more trouble? That anxiety, that fear shows that your priorities may not be in the place that God designed our priorities to be. Fear is an indicator. Anxiety is an indicator that something's not right. And so you need to explore, what what is that? But we see here that Solomon is not just observing life. He's also trying to learn things and he wants to communicate what he learns to other people. So he shares this with us on your outline. But God gives joy. But God gives joy gives joy. Solomon goes on to explain why all this, all your life's earnings, all your assets, all your things, all this pursuit of pleasure and meaning and satisfaction, he goes on to explain why, why it's okay. Why it's okay. Verse 24, so I decided that there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom. He gives knowledge. And he gives joy to those who please him. But if a sinner becomes wealthy, God takes the wealth away and gives it to those who please him. I'm going to say that again. But if a sinner becomes wealthy... God takes the wealth away and gives it to those who please him. This too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. It's important to note here that the context of what Solomon is saying here provides a key for us to understand what he's trying to explain. He's not advocating for throwing caution to the wind and diving in to these pleasures of this life here on earth. But instead, he is advocating that we embrace what God has given to us. Now, it's important to note here that in the wisdom writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, we're talking about normal human beings in normal situations. And so we're not talking about when there's a, 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 a war between countries. We're not talking about a, 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 you know, a crazy leader that's destroyed uh, a, a nation. We're not talking about genocide. We're not talking about famine. We're talking about kind of an everyday life situation, okay? So, you know, there, there's going to be a different need to use food differently if there's not enough food. Does everybody understand that? So that's not what he's, he's saying here, that there's just always dive into what's good. But in normal situations where we have enough, 
We should enjoy what God has given to us. Solomon's main takeaway is discovering the gifts that God has given to us. Without faith in God, everything is futile. Everything. They will result in a lack of joy. But joy itself is a gift from God. Even in this life, Solomon says, even in this life, if someone's a sinner and they make a ton of money, when they die, God's going to take that money, or maybe before they die, he's going to take that money, and he's going to do what he wants with that money. Because he's God. That should encourage us. If we're a follower of Christ, we can know that God is in control of this world. And he determines distribution. He determines distribution not only of money, but of natural resources, of talents, of gifts, of family. He determines that. He distributes for his own purposes. We don't get a say. But what we do get to decide is to enjoy what God has given to us. Solomon is sharing, we strive so much and our striving is meaningless. So instead of striving, start enjoying. Instead of striving, start enjoying. Now, this can seem extremely nihilistic. You've probably heard this phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now, I don't think he got as much criticism for that as Solomon probably gets in the book of Ecclesiastes. But that's not what Solomon is advocating here. He's not advocating eat, drink, and be merry because you're going to die. Instead, he's advocating eat, drink, and be merry because God has decided to give you good gifts that you can enjoy. Enjoy God's good gifts because that's what they are. They're gifts. You know, it's amazing to me that for the majority of this writing, you see Solomon's pursuits without God. And as he comes back, after all these pathways that he's taken, he comes back to this. He mentions God three times extremely quickly. He wants us to see that God doesn't just give gifts. One of the gifts that he gives is the ability to see things as a gift, to enjoy them. You know, it's one of the things that I think is funny. I got to be honest. I don't love New Year's as a holiday. I don't love it at all. Here's the two things I see every New Year's. You're making me stay up late to see something I've seen at this point in my life 34 times. I probably didn't see some as a kid, but I've been told about it, right? So that happens every year, it's the same. And then you know what you start the new year doing? You start talking about how horrible you are at stuff and how you need to get better at these things. Right? I mean, when you made your New Year's resolution this year, who decided they're not going to do anything new? They're just going to enjoy who they are and what God has given to them. I got weight to lose. I've got new friends to make. I've got new practices and habits. And all of them meant something was missing from your life beforehand. And can I share something with you? That's cultural discipleship not biblical discipleship. When we become a follower of Jesus, we get a new family with an eternal inheritance, with a master builder who is building a place for us. That's what we get. And we get new attitudes and desires that change the way we see things that have always been a part of our life. 
And so New Year starts with shame. But an identity with Christ starts with security. It starts with security. So this year, don't just pray for more gifts. Make sure you pray for God to give you the gift of enjoying what he's given to you. Because he's given you a good gift. When's the last time you prayed and asked God to help you enjoy what you have? Do you pray as much for new or different things as you do to enjoy what God has already given you? Are we always searching and striving for what is next or new? Solomon is trying to communicate to all of us. God has given you a gift, and that gift is life. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says it this way. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. An attitude of understanding that every activity I participate in is a gift from our Heavenly Father. Paul explains to us that we should live our lives in a way where everything is oriented towards the glory of God. Everything. That meal I made on the big green egg, glory of God. That drink you had to celebrate New Year's Eve, to the glory of God. To watch your kids open their Christmas presents, to the glory of God. To go back to work on Monday after maybe some time off and to enjoy the work that God has given to you, to the glory of God. God has given us a good gift with our life. Here's the insight that Solomon gives to us first. You can't grab joy. You can't grab it. Joy can only be given to you. You can't grab joy. No matter how much you spend, no matter how much you work, no matter how much you buy, no matter how much you say or learn, you can't grab joy. It can only be given to you. One of the ways that we recognize that reality that Solomon shares with us is through the Lord's Supper. If you've got your elements, you can go ahead and take those out. The Lord's Supper is a practice that we participate in as the body of Christ, remembering and celebrating the gift of Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. It's good news because according to God's standard, we fall short. No matter how much we try and grab and achieve, we will never meet God's standard. If you need elements, please lift your hand so they can get you some, okay? We'll never meet that standard. But the good news, the gospel, the thing we celebrate through this bread and this drink is that Jesus Christ came to earth and he lived an obedient life. God sent him here for us. And Jesus Christ lived obediently, righteously, perfectly in the sight of God, not just in the sight of men. And then he died a sacrificial death on our behalf so that our debt our sin, our guilt, our shame would be wiped away forever. And when he was raised from the dead, we're guaranteed that we'll have eternal life from him. We become a member of the family of God and we will live forever with him in fellowship and intimacy. That's what we celebrate when we take these elements. But before we do that, I wanna take a moment for us to all reflect 
And I want you to ask this question in prayer to God. And if there's something not right in your relationship with him, repent. And if God has been good to you recently and you recognize that, celebrate. But here's the question as we reflect. What does God's sacrifice mean to me? What does God's sacrifice mean to you? Let's take a moment and pray and talk with God about that question. God, we thank you for an opportunity to be in your presence and to consciously participate with you as we pray, reflect on our life. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son Jesus that cleanses us from all our unrighteousness, that you make us new creations, you distribute to us a new gift to participate in the kingdom of God that's here on earth. And we thank you, God, that this is not all there is that one day you're coming back. And every tear will be wiped away. We will live in utter joy in your presence in the place that you've prepared for us. So God, as we take these elements today, we, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for changing us. And we thank you, God, for making this whole plan. Take your elements, peel that top layer off and get your bread, your wafer, your cracker. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul was explaining how to properly take the Lord's Supper. In chapter 11, verse 23, he says this, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take your cup. There's a lot of pressure in opening this in front of y'all. verse 25 he said in the same way he took the cup of wine after supper saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it drink your cup then Paul goes on to say For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing to the world the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you that you meet us, especially uniquely with your presence as we partake in the Lord's Supper. And God, we pray as your church, help us to enjoy the gifts. Help us to have a peculiar joy that's different than what the world says happiness looks like.
And I pray, God, that you would bring people into our life around us that would question why we have so much joy. We thank you for the model of Jesus Christ and how much he enjoyed living even in this fallen planet. And I pray, God, that you would make us more like him to celebrate your good gifts and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. And God, if there's anyone in here who's never experienced that true, deep, abiding, forever satisfaction by placing their faith in Christ, I pray they'd come down today to share with our care volunteers. They need to know how to gain that gift. God, we love you. God, help us in this new year to glorify you in all that we say, think, and do. It's in the name of Christ we pray these things and all God's people said. Amen. Thank you for being here. See you next week. Thanks for joining us for this week's podcast. Next week, we'll continue the series, What's the Point? To prepare, read Ecclesiastes chapter 3 through chapter 6, verse 12. At Brookwood, we want to help you pursue a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience a transformed life. One way you can do this is by getting connected at Brookwood. Email us, connections at brookwoodchurch.org or call 864-688-8326 to speak to someone on our Connections team. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date with the What's the Point series. If you like this podcast, please leave a review so others can discover how they can experience a transformed life in Christ. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year and have a great week.